morning. At some point in your life, you've undoubtedly had a person say to you something like, God said to me, or God spoke to me, or then it's like I heard God saying. And if you're like me, you're not sure how to respond to something like that. On one hand, I don't want to blurt out, no, he didn't. (laughs) Because in the Bible, there are a few instances where God did speak to people, so I have to admit that he's certainly capable of doing that and has done it in the past. On the other hand, you might feel a little bit uncomfortable with those words. You might want to ask questions like, uh, when did this happen? You know, did you have pizza the night before and had a bad ingredient on it or something? Uh, how did he speak to you? Was it a still, small voice? Did you hear him audibly? If you've been around for a while, you realize that sometimes when people say God speaks to them, it's because they're mentally unstable. So it raises all kinds of questions. What does it mean for God to communicate with us? As we go through life, how should we expect God to guide us? Should we expect to hear audibly from God? And um, all of us make decisions in life, important decisions about marriage and family and children and parenting and jobs and all sorts of things. And We want to do the right thing, so what is it we expect, we can expect, should expect from God? How will he lead us? How will we know if what we're doing is pleasing him? Well, that's what I want to think about for a few minutes. We're in the third week of this series, as Mary Kay mentioned, and these are posters that we've designed to put in the children's ministry area. In fact, we're going to put them, if you know the children's ministry hallway, on the right side, there's a room that is used for kindergarten through second grade. That's the main meeting room for them. And we thought these would be good things for children. They're just learning to read, and they give very foundational truths from the Bible that we think people should pay attention to. And we thought before putting them up there, let's have a series in which we talk about these foundational truths. And uh, undoubtedly, these are things that you've heard about or thought about before in some way. But what we want to do is give you a little deeper understanding of what they mean, maybe deeper than a second grader would need himself or herself, but things that lie behind this that we need to understand, particularly those who are raising or dealing with children on a regular basis. Now, there are three things we want to talk about this morning about how God communicates with us. The first is God has spoken to us. The second is God is speaking to us. And the third is that God wants to talk to us. Well, first, God has spoken to us. The Bible uh, tells us that God has already spoken to us, and he's done so in Jesus Christ. So it says in Hebrews chapter 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So what that says is that long ago, God spoke to individuals whom we call prophets, and we have some of their writings in the Bible. But when Jesus came, he was the final and definitive word of God. He's called the word of God. Word, in that case, means revelation. God is, Jesus is God's final revelation of himself. So in the song that we sang, the 
creed or part of the creed, ideas that come from it. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, is eternally preexistent and was with the Father forever, but at a point in time, he assumed a human nature in the womb of the Virgin Mary and was born as the God-man, the only person who has ever lived who was united God and man in one person as he is forever. That's why he's called the Word of God. He reveals God fully and finally so that we find in Jesus how God feels about us, what he wants from us, what he wants for us. That was revealed in Jesus Christ. Well, you might say, isn't the Bible called the Word of God? And yes, actually, the Bible is more times than Jesus called the Word of God. But the Bible is the Word of God because it is simply the authoritative record of everything about Jesus. Everything that we need to know. When it says God spoke to the fathers by the prophets, obviously he spoke to them and revealed truths to them. But if they had never written them down, those things could have just been passed orally from generation to generation. Would have been only a dim and probably not very clear understanding of things. And the same is true of Jesus. If Jesus came and there was no record of what he did and what he said that was left to us in writing, we would have passed by oral tradition all of these things about Jesus, but they wouldn't have been clear. The Bible gives to us an accurate and complete record of everything we need to know about Jesus Christ. So there's a point where Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day in John chapter 5, He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness of me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So someone wisely said, the scriptures are a map. They're not a location. If you need to get to a place that is complicated to get to and you have a map that's accurate, it's an infallible guide to get you to the location. But when you arrive at the location you're looking for, you don't uh, sit and study the map anymore. You fold the map up and put it away and you enjoy the location. The scriptures are a sufficient guide to bring us to Jesus Christ, the Jesus Christ who lived historically as the God-man who now is at the right hand of God the Father. The scriptures infallibly bring us to him, but they're not the location. They're only the means of getting to him so that we can worship him. So God has spoken to us in his son, and the record of everything we need to know about his son is found in the Bible. The word that you should remember when you think about God's revelation of himself in the word of God is the word sufficient. The Bible claims to be sufficient for us. Now, this is a, like a theological debate that's raging today in some circles as to what sufficiency means, and there are many people denying the sufficiency of the Bible, but let me explain what it means when a person says the Bible is sufficient for us. The first thing we mean is that the Bible is sufficient in that it is a uh, fully reliable guide for life and godliness. It's a fully reliable guide for life and godliness. Those last two words are taken from 2 Peter chapter 1. And here's what it means. There are many things in the Bible that are not told to us that we have to get from other areas. For example, the Bible doesn't tell us about plumbing. I have a minor plumbing problem at home that I caused myself. And this afternoon when I get home, I'm going to have to 
redo a very simple thing that I didn't do right the first time and uh, stop a drip from happening in the basement. I'm not going to open up my Bible to find out anything about how to do it because it doesn't tell me anything about plumbing. And likewise, obviously, the Bible doesn't tell us very much, at least about carpentry, nothing about computer science or engineering or quilting or beekeeping or anything like that that we need to know. What we mean when we say the Bible is sufficient is we mean it's everything we need to know in order to live a godly life in whatever area we are or whatever thing we are doing. So it tells a plumber how to be a godly plumber. Tells a carpenter how to be a godly plumber or carpenter and so forth. The Bible is sufficient to teach us life and godliness no matter what it is we're doing or where we are living. And what that sense in which it is sufficient. Now there's a second thing that we mean when we say the Bible is sufficient. This is the one that people really don't like today. But it is that the Bible claims, at least itself, that it gives to us all of the information that we need in order to answer even the most complex questions of life. It doesn't answer all of the most complex questions of life directly, but it gives us all of the information we need that if we can gather it together will help us to answer all kinds of social questions and ethical questions that people are asking today. In that sense, it's sufficient. Now, the Bible doesn't give us answers to every question we could ever ask, at least in a direct sense. For example, if you're a boss tomorrow, if you work for someone, they they tell you they want you to go to a specific place to do a specific job. And you leave in your car, and instead of going to that place, you go get your boat and you go out for the day on the lake and go fishing. Uh, Is that a right thing to do? Some of you aren't so sure, but I would say no. I would suggest that maybe that's not a right thing to do. And the fact is, the Bible doesn't answer that question for you. If you go to the Bible and you want to have the answer to the question, should I go fishing instead of doing the work that I've been assigned to do, it's not going to tell you the answer. But we know it's answered under the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. And when someone is paying you to do a specific job, and yet you take that same time just to enjoy yourself, that is event as essentially stealing from your employer. So we have the answer to all kinds of questions. That's a relatively simple one that fall under broader categories and we understand that. But in the same way the Bible doesn't speak about that, it doesn't speak to many, many issues that we face today. The Bible never speaks directly to the issue of abortion, to same-sex marriage, to stem cell research, to nuclear proliferation, to all kinds of things that people want to know about today, are struggling with today and seeking to answer. However, what we are saying is that it provides all of the information necessary to answer those questions. Now, I suppose if I opened it up for questions right now, it wouldn't take very long for someone to ask me a question that I'd have to say, Now, that's a really difficult one. I'll have to think about that. What I mean is, I'm not saying that every answer to every complex question is simple. It's not necessarily simple. It may require a great deal of study and a thought about different principles in the Bible and how they fit together. But what I'm saying is the Bible is capable of giving us the information we need to answer even the most complex questions of life. So the Bible as God's revelation of his son, Jesus, is sufficient. It's sufficient to enable us to live godly lives no matter what it is we are doing or where we are living. 
and it is also sufficient to answer the most complex questions we might ask in life. God has already spoken to us, and he's done so in his word. Now, the Bible also tells us that God is speaking to us. In fact, he's speaking to all people in the world right now, and he's doing it in two ways. The first one is in what we would call creation. This is from Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed. Let me note that's present tense. As it was written, it is right now being revealed presently. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes... Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images representing mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And I want you to note in there, in uh, the, the first part that you looked at, that it says what can be known about God is plain to them. It means to all human beings. Because God has shown it to them, and he's referring to creation. All of the things that, made of God, that God has made. And it's quite explicit as to what it is human beings should know that creation is sufficient to tell them. They are two specific things, his eternal power and his divine nature. What that means is that the existence of an eternal, omnipotent God should be known to all people from the fact of creation. It should be unquestioned. Now, there's something we can't learn from creation. We can't learn the character of this eternally all-powerful God. And the reason we can't is that it's not sufficient to tell us that. Uh, This morning I was sitting, drinking some coffee, and looking out the kitchen window where my wife has put two bird feeders. And uh, this year, for some reason, we have birds coming, a lot of birds. And there's beautiful finches and cardinals and blue jays and some ugly birds too. But, you know, there's all these birds showing up there, some squirrels that my wife very rudely chases away. And uh, I, was sta- I was sitting there, and there was a cardinal that, that just was so beautiful. And I watched this cardinal. It was on the bird feeder, but then it went down the ground, and it was eating seed that had fallen on the ground. But as it was eating, it would pick up a piece, and it would look around like this, and it would pick up another piece, and it would be looking like this. And I thought to myself, I'm sitting here feeling good, enjoying this, peaceful, calm, I wonder if that cardinal is experiencing the same thing I'm experiencing. And the fact is, no. That cardinal has no way of knowing uh, whether God is good, we might say, because he lives in a world that to him is endlessly dangerous. There's bigger birds that can chase away or kill the smaller birds. There's cats in the neighborhood. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of dangers to a bird. Creation doesn't tell us exactly what the character of this God is, except that he provides rather liberally through nature. But it does tell us his eternal power and his divine nature. 
And then I was told once when I was young, you know, God has revealed himself, is revealing himself at all times in the things around us. And they said, if a person, let's say in deepest, darkest Africa, they have no way of knowing God, no revelation, no missionaries or anything like that. If that person would respond to the light that conscience gives, the light of nature that is telling him about this eternal uh, God, if he would respond to that, God would be moved to bring to him the revelation that he needs. Missionary, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, written information, whatever it is, God would be moved to bring it to him. And I thought, that is so great. But it's not true. The reason it's not true is that this passage that I just read in Romans chapter 1 is written for the very purpose of telling us no one ever does it. The problem with creation it is that it is not sufficient to save us. It is only sufficient to condemn us. That's the point of the passage. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. I mean, the whole point is that no one responds to creation. In the fallen world, apart from grace, no one responds to creation. What we do is we twist it in some way so that we don't believe in the God who is revealed to us, but we make him lesser and smaller and do the things that are described here, or we deny his existence at all. Now, there's another way in which God is revealing himself, and that is in conscience. So in the next chapter of Romans, in chapter 2, there's another verse, and this is talking about the fact that those, and the days of the Apostle Paul, who did not have the written scriptures, that is, everyone who wasn't a Jew and wasn't a part of the nation of Israel, everyone who was a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, uh, was also condemned he says, even though they didn't have the scriptures so they couldn't sin against some knowledge, he says they showed, the Gentiles, that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Now what that says is that God's basic moral requirements are written on the human heart in what we call conscience. And conscience is an imperfect arbiter of how we ought to make decisions of what we ought to do, but it is something in which God is constantly speaking to people that there is right and wrong in life. There are right ways to live and to act, and there are wrong ways to live. It calls it here not the law itself, but the work of the law, meaning the basic things required by God, which we know are written in the Ten Commandments, those basic moral requirements are written on every human heart. But like the first thing, the revelation of creation, the revelation of conscience does not work. No one left to himself or herself in a fallen world is going to obey the dictates of conscience in a way that will bring them to God. That's why the gospel is so important. God must do something to change our hearts to enable us to come to him. Now, both of these, creation and conscience, are conduits of real information to people. And um, they're not sufficient, however. They're not sufficient to save us. 
In fact, it's often said that these two things are sufficient to condemn us, but not to save us. We are without excuse because we have them, but we don't respond to them, and so we will never move towards God. And as the scripture says, left to ourselves, no one seeks for God. So only the word of God is sufficient to guide us in life, to save us. God has spoken in it. God is presently speaking in creation and conscience. And the last thing we want to think about is God wants to speak to us. That's this phrase that's found here. God wants to talk to us. One of the most difficult things is to understand what it means to have a relationship with God. Because it's a word that we use today. In fact, I I think the terms relationship with God were not common until just the last 50 years or so. At least when I read things, they didn't really use it. It doesn't mean they didn't describe it or believe in it. But relationship is a word that we use to think about the importance of the fabric of society. And so we use it to describe what is it like to know God. Well, it's like a relationship. The Bible never uses the word relationship. In its place, the Bible uses the word covenant. A relationship with God is described in terms of a formal relationship or covenant between a great heavenly king and his subjects. That's how the Bible pictures it, essentially. Now, when we say God wants to talk to us, we don't mean that God wants to speak to us audibly. And I don't think we should teach our children to expect that God is going to talk to us that way because God normally communicates with us through his word. The first thing that Mary Kay read to us this morning, all scripture is breathed out by God. That is, it's his word. As a person breathes when they speak, it reveals him. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Like it's profitable for all of life. It's the way that God shapes us and guides us and all of those things. So normally, we expect God to speak to us through his word. You might say, well, what about impressions? A person might have an impression from God and do that and find that it's fruitful. Or, or what about the still, small voice with which God spoke to Elijah when he was in the cave in First Kings? Or what about uh, seeing God work in some visible way and, and acknowledging that that was God at work? Well, I don't want to deny that God is capable of doing that at all. I read the Bible, and obviously he is more than capable of doing that. It would be difficult to prove that he's no longer in the business of ever doing that or anything like that. But I would say that's not the normal means of guidance in life. That's not normally how God communicates with his people. In fact, even in Bible times when there were prophets, it wasn't the normal way in which it was done. God speaks through his word. And I want to try to illustrate that by telling you about two different experiences I had in life that had to do with guidance about making an important decision. I became a Christian when I was 19 at Michigan State University, and um, about a year after that, the next year, I was invited to go on a summer beach project with the campus ministry that I was involved in. So during the summer, I would go to North Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, if I went on this project, and I would live in a big house with a bunch of students and leaders, and uh, I would get a, a job that gave me a lot of freedom, so Uh, here, low wages, you know, a low-paying job that would give me a lot of freedom so that I would have time to do other things. Like I could only work 20 hours a week so that I would have time to lead Bible studies and go out on the beach and talk to people and uh, go to campgrounds and we would lead meetings and things like that. So 
Um, I really wondered, wondered if I should do this. I, I happened to have had the privilege that my grandfather had left money for me to go to college, but it wasn't enough for, you know, just to pay for everything. So I had to work some during the year in order to, to uh, go to college, and um, I needed to make some money that summer. So I was reading my Bible, and as I was uh, reading it, I came across this verse. Proverbs 10 and verse 5, and it said, He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. And I remember feeling, bingo. God is speaking directly to me through this verse. I mean, I didn't know a lot about the Bible, but I knew Jesus said something about harvest and praying for workers for the harvest. And here I was, a son of God, and I was going to go gather in summer and participate in his harvest. And so I decided to go on the trip. Now, I have to tell you, in looking back, I'm not sure I used that verse correctly. I'm not convinced that's exactly what the verse meant. For one thing, the verse, obviously, if you just stop to think about it, is a principle. And the principle is a wise person, a wise son in this case, uh, works at the proper time in order to be able to rest at the proper time. And if harvest is a time to work, he's not going to be sleeping at that time. He's going to be working. I could just as easily have used the verse to say I ought to stay home because I ought to work so that I can go to college the next fall, uh, make enough money to be able to do that. But I didn't. I took it in a very spiritual way that it was directed to me as though that Solomon wrote that verse for Tom Llewellyn in 1973 or whenever it was. That was after the flood, by the way, for those who of you... <laughs> who are young here, but um, I never talked to anyone else about it. I never spoke to my parents about it. I did ask their permission, but I didn't ask them, should I do this? I didn't ask my friends about it because it was me and God, and God spoke to me, and I knew what to do. Now, I have to note that that summer was a life-changing experience for me. God used that to transform my life, my character, understanding of the Bible, really sent me in a different direction, However, I look back and feel like even though I misconstrued what God meant by that verse, God used my youthful exuberance and my newfound love for him to put me in a position where he really worked in my life. That doesn't make what I took out of that verse right, but it means that God is willing to use childish things sometimes to train his children. And I've gained a conviction from that. It's better to have people misuse the Bible than not to use it at all. You know, I, I don't want to help nurture a group of people who are so afraid of making mistakes that they uh, will never do anything or, or they, they, they uh, will always have to ask somebody else, is this really right? Should I do this? And that kind of thing. But I don't think it was really a wise way to be guided. I don't want to go through life thinking that there are specific verses written just for me. Now, go forward a, a long time until just 2012, 13. In 2001, a week before 9-11 occurred, in September of 2001, we sent a young couple to Bosnia as missionaries from here. This was the product of 15 years of work from the point we started our church until we sent them. We had worked together as a church and many different groups had worked to seek to raise up missionaries from within our congregation. And this was a young couple who had grown up here, gone to Bible college, 
had, um, we had engaged them purposefully because they were thinking of going into missions and helping to plant one of the churches that we started in Ore Creek that's in Heartland. And uh, they were ready to go. They were going with a specific mission board, and we sent them out. It was a very joyous time. Donovan and Jocelyn Jock were in Bosnia for just over 13 years, I believe. And uh, Donovan became very ill. We brought him home in 2013, and uh, in the fall of 2013, he passed away. His wife, his uh, widow, Jocelyn, and her, their two boys are a part of our congregation here, an important part. Many of you, you know them. Now, when that happened, it was kind of a blow to those of us who had been a part of things for a long time because this is something we worked on for so long, and while we... We're always trying to groom people that might be interested in going into missions and using some of our missions budget to send students and young adults to places to get experience. We didn't have anyone that was ready to go on the field, and we had designed our budget to be able to almost fully support a family on the field. And uh, now they, they were leaving the field, and they were back home. So one day, as I was thinking about this, I, I got this idea. And my idea was, what if we took a couple who are technically not from our church, but they have been a part of our ministry for years. And it's this Albanian couple, Gregor and Kayla Menga, who we've had all kinds of contact with. A lot of you have met them, seen them. We've Skyped with Gregor here. What if we took them and we made them our commended missionaries, as the term that we use for Donovan and Jocelyn, people that were fully supported and directed by the church's elders in their ministry. What if we did that with them? And I wasn't sure it was a good idea. Uh, most of my ideas are just phenomenal, as, <laughs> as Donald Trump would say. But um, <laughs> every once in a while, I have a real squeaker. So I, uh, you know, I, what I thought I'd do is I'll get with the World Ministries team, and I'll present it to them and see what they think. So I prepared and sat down with the World Ministries team. Well, Jocelyn Jock, a newly widowed woman, uh, home from the mission field, is on the World Ministries team. And I remember going into it thinking, Jocelyn would have some reasons not to be real excited about this. I mean, just naturally, she might feel like we were the beloved missionaries of the church for 13 years, and it's kind of hard to see someone take our place. And, uh, you know, there were all kinds of reasons why. It just might be a difficult thing for her, I realized, right at the point that she was at. But what happened is she jumped right on board. She was the first person to speak up. And I thought, this is great, you know. I know this is what we need to do. And so I presented it to the elder team. Now, when I make a formal proposal to the elders, I try to make it, I try to make it such that they're going to say, he put so much work into this, I don't know how we can turn it down. Not really. And they don't seem to have any trouble turning things down. So um, I didn't have a proposal that was very good. It's like I wrote out some thoughts in a napkin because I thought, hey, you know, this, this is a sure thing. Went into this meeting, and, and we had about five minutes of discussion, of discussion in which they asked five questions that I realized I hadn't even considered, and they were really significant questions. I mean, it sent me back to six months of work behind the scenes, working with Gregor, working with mission boards, talking about all kinds of detailed things about how missionaries are supported and so forth. And I eventually went back to the elder team, as they had encouraged me to, about six months later. And we you know, had worked out all the financial, logistical questions that had been asked, and they affirmed it. During that time, also, I'd been reading the Bible. But when I was reading the Bible, I wasn't looking for anything that would, like, 
give me this subjective feeling like, yes, this is the right thing to do. More, I was looking for things like, how did the apostles direct the ministry in the book of Acts? How did Jesus direct the ministry? How were the early churches started? How were missionaries supported? You know, what, what information does the Bible have on that? Now, what happened as a result of that is, once we decided to move forward with it, some of you remember that we commended the Mengas when they were last in the United States at the end of 2014. It was a tremendous time. And they returned. They'd already planted two churches. And they're now in Tetovo, Macedonia, seeking to start a third. It's a very difficult field. They're really struggling. But they knew they would. The thing that's come out of it, however, is that what we did eventually was we started an organization called Church Expansion Albania. It's separate from our church, but it's um, under us at this point in terms of our nonprofit status and so forth. But what you need to know is that last year, 2015, Church Expansion Albania brought in $80,000. And we contributed about 40% of that. The rest came from churches and individuals outside of us. And in fact, those that came from individuals and churches outside of us grew over the year before that. So God used that to develop something bigger than I originally dreamed. Originally, I just thought, well, we'll send out Gregor and Caleb. But now we have three workers, all Albanians, one in Albania, one in Kosovo, and one in Macedonia, who are planting churches and establishing churches among Albanian populations. And yet, the guidance was not any kind of emotional experience or any sense that there's this verse that says, yes, you should do that. Or something like that. God wants to talk to us. And he does that through Jesus. And he wants us to draw close to Jesus, but the only way we can know Jesus and draw close to him is through his word that is the accurate record about him. All that is revealed in his word, the Bible, points us unfailingly to Jesus Christ so that we can find ourselves in his presence. Now let me close this way. I want you to think of a field, like a field that horses would run in, run free in, large, but it has fences. And most people, I find, when they think about God's will, they think that God's will is like a treasure that's planted in that field. In that field somewhere, there's this treasure, and if you can find that exact point and dig it up, you will have the confidence that this is what God wants you to do. This is the woman he wants you to marry. This is the job he wants you to take. Whatever it is, they're looking for something that tells them, this is what God wants me to do. I can have confidence because I'm right in the center of God's will. Instead of thinking it that way, I'd like you to think of God's will as the whole field. And the fences of the field represent the moral will of God. God's will is not, uh, for human life, is not... Uh, cover everything that is possible to do. His revealed will is that we stay within certain moral boundaries that are represented in things like the Ten Commandments and the moral teachings of the Bible. They tell us pretty clearly what God doesn't want us to do. And inside of those boundaries, we're free to do all kinds of things. Now, let's say you think of God's will as this dot, this one place in the field where a treasure is buried. What so often happens is you become paralyzed because you don't want to make a mistake. 
or you're never sure that you've gotten enough information, you keep digging, so to speak, looking for that one verse that shouts at you, or that person, or that word that a person gives to you who says, this is what you ought to do. So you become paralyzed, not wanting to make a mistake, or you put out a fleece like Gideon, you know, God, I'm going to do this, and if you do this, I'll think such and such. But God wants you to think of his will as this vast field in which you're free to live. I had a seminary professor once tell me, let's say there's a man, and he he wants to get married, and he meets two different women. He falls in love, but he can only marry one, obviously, and so he has to decide which one. And finally, he decides, I'm going to marry this girl and not this girl. Now, he knows as a Christian he should look for a Christian woman. These women are both Christians. He should look for someone whose heart is attracted to God and belongs to God in the same way that his is. And so he, he finds these two women who love Jesus and want to follow him and uh, want to build their life around that. And he, he knows some other basic principles about marriage, and both these women fall into that. But he decides to marry this one, and he said, what happens if 20 years down the road it's been a really tough go? She's been rough to live with. Did he miss God's will? He said, no, that was God's will. It was God's will for whatever reason that we may not know, but to shape him and guide him and guard him and whatever it would be, he gave to him a difficult marriage. God's will is this expansive opportunity that we have, like it says in Psalm uh, 34, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And that's how the Bible views God's will. He wants to talk to us. He has given us all the guidance that we need in his word, and we need to know it and learn it and think about it and do that with freedom to search his word and rejoice in all the ways he tells us all the things that we can do. And then we need to go out and live for him and do what delights us to do. Let's pray. Our gracious God, again, we thank you for the freedom that we have through your spirit in your presence. It's a freedom that is so easily misused by people who think, as the Apostle Paul would say, that it's freedom to uh, opportunity for the flesh to have its own way. And yet we know that you have given to us boundaries in life. And you give us strict instructions to live within those boundaries. And yet within that, you give us freedom. You want to guide us in life, and we pray that you would do that. We pray that you would make us the kind of people who long for you and learn to delight in you. And we pray that you would make us the kind of church where people meet together individually and in groups and they desire to encourage and be the means of guiding and guarding people's hearts. And trust us to you, Jesus.